But for now, I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the very word of God. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, may it be that we would receive your word this day. May it be that the same Holy Spirit that fills your people would move in us, that we would be brought to greater belief, greater repentance of sin, and greater hope and joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was young and in high school, I had a friend across the street that one time at a youth function told this joke. And before I bring fear upon my wife, I am not going to tell this particular joke, but this joke was called the dirty little golf ball. 
And it was really a joke on the hearers. I'm giving you the punchline, so it's going to be ruined for you in the future. But the whole idea in the joke was telling this story about this little boy who called somebody a dirty little golf ball and got in a lot of trouble for it. And it goes on, and it recounts the story, and it gets bigger each time, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. And then at the end, there is a tragic crash, and the person's about to find out what, the, what dirty little golf ball means, and he gets hit by a car and dies. And you never get to find out the answer, and everyone hates you because you've been listening to the joke for 10 or 15 minutes. The repetition of this particular story is not meant to be like that. Here we are again, hearing the same story recounted again. And so there is not a joke. There is not a cruel ending. It's not a tragic ending. God, when he repeats things multiple times, it's just the very opposite for us. God is telling us something he really wants us to know and understand. This is the third time that the story of Cornelius is recounted to us. Ultimately, it's the fourth time because we have in the narrative written by Luke the very first account, but then we have the two servants and the soldiers telling Peter what happened with Cornelius. And then when Peter meets Cornelius, Cornelius tells Peter what happened to him. And then here, as Peter is explaining to the circumcision party, he is telling it again. But for us, we have now heard it ultimately four times, but we've heard somebody recount it three times. And just as we had in the passage in Isaiah, we know that when God says things three times, it has significant impact. Even in this particular story of Peter seeing the vision, God shows him the vision of the animals three times. And so Luke is putting it here for us. He could have fast-forwarded and said, and Peter recounted the situation, or Cornelius recounted the situation, but he goes through and tells us the same thing in detail of how it happened. So I am compelled to preach again on this particular story, not because I just like to play some kind of joke on you all. It's because it is in God's word, and we should listen. And we should expect the very opposite of a cruel ending. Why is God really wanting to pound this in our minds and encourage our hearts in this particular account of the story of Cornelius? The thing to look for is what's different. What's different in this particular portrayal? Often if you have a situation where somebody changes the story, you can get suspicious. But because we have the confidence that God's word is true and that it is inspired, any kind of change in an account is a true change. It is a true thing for us to hear, and it correlates and is complete with things that we may see as absent. Sometimes we run into this challenge in the Gospels where we have just a little varying detail that's slightly different. We go, oh, wait a minute, why is it different here in Mark as it is in Matthew? Well, it's not that they're at opposed to each other. It's that, that God is wanting to give us a more full proclamation of his truth. Did anybody notice anything different about what Peter 
said about the account of Cornelius that is absent in all the other accounts of the angel speaking to Cornelius. Didn't know you were going to have a quiz. I haven't been giving you all quizzes lately. You're getting soft. When he remembered the words of the Lord Jesus? Well, he's remembering, but no, he's, when he actually is talking about what happened to Cornelius, because the, the, the circumstance of the angel coming to Cornelius, there's something different. And it actually changes in each one of the circumstances just a little bit, or it increases. It's not changing. It's actually getting fuller. Peter takes it to a further degree. And you don't see it in the account of the two servants and the soldier. You don't see it in the initial account when Cornelius is explaining to Peter what had happened. What you have in Acts 10, chapter 22, you have the two servants and the soldiers telling Peter that Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. That's that. Cornelius, when he's talking to Peter, says, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the, all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So it's kind of filling that out a little bit. First, it was all that you have to say. Now Cornelius is saying all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Then, when Peter tells the circumcision party what was told to Cornelius, he says, and he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say. This is in verse 13 through 14. Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. In all the other accounts, that was never mentioned, that that was the case. In fact, if you go to Luke's initial account, he just says, go to Peter and send for him. And then it keeps increasing. The story keeps increasing. Now, because we have on good trust that the Lord's word is true, all of those things are true. We're just getting a, a more complete. For some reason, as Luke is repeating this story to us, it has a fuller explanation. So we have to understand that there's something specifically important about what Peter is saying to the circumcision party that is having an impact. What is the conflict? The circumcision party is criticizing Peter because they have gotten word that Peter has not only gone to uncircumcised people, he did what else? He ate with them. He ate with them. Now we who are familiar with the gospel have recalled that that was something that they got after Jesus a lot for eating with sinners. This idea of eating with the uncircumcised is a big deal to Jews. And for good reason. They were told not to have that kind of association with the uncircumcised because they were a people who were called to be separate. When they celebrated Passover, Passover was only to be with those who were circumcised. And when there were those within their households, within their gates, 
that were there, they were called to be circumcised. And if they were circumcised, then they can participate in those particular feasts. But apart from that, they were to be considered outside, separate, unclean, defiled, to be away from holy people, not because of their own holiness, but because of a proclamation of a holy God. And so here they're criticizing Peter, even though these are those who are brothers, they're criticizing Peter because they're still thinking about that particular command of God, that people who are of God, people who are clean, people who are holy and separate are those who are going to be circumcised. And so for Peter to go to these who are uncircumcised and to associate with them to the degree to eat and have commonality with them is considered to be a sinful thing. It is considered to be an unholy thing to do because they're going off of what they have been taught ultimately from God's word. And so the conflict here is that Peter is doing something wrong because a special promise, a certain provision has been given for a special people and he should not be doing this. And Peter is responding by giving giving them an eyewitness account, a personal account of two particular things. He gives them the account of the vision that he had which is explaining to him, and he is, as, we have, are we, as we're seeing in the story, it is coming to mind to him that God is making it very clear that the approach that he has to people is getting bigger and spreading out, that the gospel is being proclaimed by this momentous event that he is drawing all nations unto himself. As you look at the four corners of this particular tablecloth, and we'll go back to this later on, the four corners are to symbolize the four corners of the earth, that God's grace, that God's goodness, that God's favor is spreading out, and that he is no longer allowed to use that as a distinction. And he even says, I follow these men, making no distinction. God has changed the rules of how we are to associate with people. He has changed his approach, not because he has changed his plan, but that he is fulfilling the very plan and promise in which the commands were based on because he is bringing all nations to himself. And what he is doing here in telling the story of Cornelius just so very slightly differently He is reminding them of the promises that God has made that were associated with those laws. And it is revolving around the word household. We've already seen this trajectory occurring all the way in Acts 2, where he is telling them that this promise is for you and your household. And again, it is based upon the very first time that God had proclaimed that distinction through a mark, the very mark of circumcision. We see that in Genesis chapter 17, in looking at verses 1 through 14, that he promised Abram 
He says, no longer will your, your name be called Abram, but your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. For what? An everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It was always a challenging dilemma that as God is making forth a separate nation, that he is promising that separate nation that he is going to make a multitude of nations. It's always been a promise that this grace was going to cover the four corners of the world. And as he established that promise, he established a mark in verse 9. It says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. That was the initiation of the covenant sign circumcision. And it was for a particular promise that God was going to be a people to Abraham and his offspring and to a multitude of nations as an everlasting covenant. This is a promise of the covenant that we're seeing fulfilled from Pentecost and now going throughout the church. Now, it doesn't explain in Genesis how all that was going to come about. Abraham had to trust in faith. That is, he was holding on to God. He was holding on through this obedience to the call of this mark to the promises that something would happen and a whole bunch of nations would be brought under God's care through the work and calling that he has been given to do. So we see that we have this circumcision command given to the household of Abraham that God's posture toward mankind would be through households. Let's go back to Acts. And he is telling them that the Lord told Cornelius in the same way that he told Abraham that salvation is going to come to you and your household. He is making an appeal to the circumcision party that God is fulfilling what he said he would do. Now, they could quickly say, well, they need to be circumcised. (laughs) 
And, but he also gave them that there's something changed about that approach, that God was using circumcision for a purpose, just as he was using the dietary laws of showing that there are those things that are holy and things that are unholy. And God tells Peter, stop calling the things that are unclean common now, because my grace is covering a multitude of nations, the four corners of the earth. It's always been the promise. I know I'm being repetitive here from sermons in the last couple of weeks, but this circumcision promise is a promise of transformation. And we know through the Old Testament itself that it is not a thing made with hands, that it is not the mark itself. It is not the sign itself that saves the people, but it is the faith holding on to the promises of God that is a gift from God of the transformation work that he is going to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed and that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 39. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God's command of circumcision was pointing to the circumcision promise of a transformation that was going to be done by God. As it was being done to the people of old, is now being done to the people in all four corners of the earth. And so in this particular account, as I've mentioned before, you see this being highlighted. He is appealing to the circumcision party that this is actually the fulfillment of what you're 
trying to get them to adhere to. He's doing what he said he would do. Now Cornelius, this Roman centurion in his household, has been given the message of the gospel, which is the message of salvation, and therefore those promises belong to him too. And as he is going back and telling them what Jesus said to them, he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It hits them. The Holy Spirit was always the promise. The promise given to Abraham. The promise being fulfilled fully in Pentecost. And now what they have received as a gift, they respond and they say, if then God has given the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter now, I'm sorry. Who is I that I could stand in God's way? And they agreed. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Throughout all of this account, as you see it being built up, you are given a reminder of three particular things. One, you're being given the reminder of the great commission that Jesus gave at the end of the gospel. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. That's what Cornelius said was the purpose in him coming to Peter was to hear all that Jesus had commanded him. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We see that being fulfilled here, that the nations are coming to him. They are coming to hear all that has been commanded of them. They are coming to the Lord by the power of the Lord to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And not to be circumcised, but to be baptized. Peter doesn't say, well, if this gift has now been given to them, it is time to circumcise them. He says, then who am I? to get in the way from baptizing these whom the Lord has called. So we have the great commission. We also have the account of the great promise that Jesus gives in the beginning of Acts. In Acts 1, verse 5, it says, Again, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now promising the account of Pentecost. Again, just like the promise was given to Abraham, he circumcised with hands. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, would circumcise the hearts of Abraham and his children himself by the Spirit of God. It is being fully proclaimed now through all the nations, just like he told Abraham that it would be so. But we also have the reminder here in the response of the circumcision party, when they, they get it all, 
They're starting to understand. Now, there will still be conflict with other members of the circumcision party that will go on and on for some time. But here they get it, and you can see they get it by the difference here in this account. and the closure, it says, then the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They see this correlation that as Peter is contending with them, that they do not need to be circumcised because God is fulfilling his promises and that they should be baptized. They understand the correlation of what has been pointed to by circumcision is also now being pointed to by baptism, which is ultimately the cutting of the heart. They said this promised gift will now go to them. Well, we've already been told this by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 41. It says, Let all the house of Israel, and get that house of Israel, therefore know for certain, this is, he was talking to the house of Israel at that time, talking to the Jews, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, they, when they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God himself calls. So this particular account is touching back on all of those accounts. Remember what it was said in the very first verse. It says that the Gentiles received the word. They were being taught about the gospel, but they were also being taught about where the promises of the gospel were, which is in the Old Testament, the only thing that they had at that time that was considered the word of God. They were going back to the word of God for a hope of their own salvation. So this message that Peter was bringing Cornelius was the good news message that was proclaimed in the Old Testament, and they were now seeing that they get to participate in that same grace and goodness of the Lord. This was his argument, and this is our assurance, and it was an encouragement to those who heard it, and it is an encouragement to us now that we know that we are those who are to be considered clean before the Lord. Now, I want to pause a minute and just kind of break this down a little bit and the ramifications of what that means. We've been talking about testimonies. It seems interesting that, you know, through our congregational meeting we talked about having times of doing testimony and it seems like that at least in the conversations that I've had we were having a conversation with Rachel and been having conversations with my family and Kevin and Abigail reading this book and it's talking about testimonies and trying to understand what does that mean when we testify about the goodness and the work of the Lord and we know that there are dynamic types of testimonies and sometimes in the church those who have not had some kind of major conversion transition, some extraordinary dynamic one, we kind of feel like we're 
kind of left out, then it's not as cool. <laughs> like, wow, you know, I just, I've always been in the church. I've always known the Lord. And that seems like that's a diminished testimony. But think about what's going on in this particular account. We have the circumcision party who many of them grew up in the word of the Lord. They were taught the scriptures. Peter, the circumcision party, even Paul. Now they had an encounter with Jesus Christ, a coming to an understanding of Jesus Christ. But if they were taught rightly, they should have always had a faithful hope in the salvation and transformation of the Holy Spirit. Their circumcision was a mark toward that. And we look at most of the time in this age, and as Americans, especially with the revivalistic movements throughout our history, that it's some kind of special thing that would just come totally out of left field, which is never really the case when you look at the broadness of how God works in our lives. And that we've gone through some kind of disappointing and destructive sin and then we came to the Lord. We think that's the common way that the Lord works. And it's just not the only path. God's diversity of his power and his grace and his providence over the salvation of his people, of all that he calls to himself, has a tremendous diversity to it. Billy Graham himself was one who, he was playing baseball one day, went to an evangelistic meeting and converted and came to the Lord. His wife... Ruth was raised up in a Christian Calvinistic home. She cannot pinpoint to the day where she came to know the Lord. She says, within about a five-year period of time, I came to a greater maturity of understanding my faith. Is Billy Graham's testimony a greater testimony of the Lord's grace? Or is Ruth Graham's testimony... It's all the Lord. It is all the Lord's testimony of what he has done. He has done a miraculous thing because Ruth is equally lost without Christ as Billy. All of us are equally lost without the grace of God. But what we see here in this message here is that the Lord has brought about this grand fulfillment of something that he's always promised, is that he would cut the hearts of his people, that he would draw a people to himself. And these marks of that transformation, though changed, they still have the same pointer to Jesus Christ. Circumcision pointed to the Holy Spirit circumcising their heart. Baptism points to the Holy Spirit baptizing our hearts, cutting our hearts. How do we know this? We know this from the Scriptures. We know this from the very Word of God. We see in Colossians chapter 2, now get ready, you have your Bibles with me, or get ready to note this. In chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourself to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and born with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. I mean, that would have been a challenging thing to hear. How can you circumcise your own heart? (laughs) Well, they can't. It was basically calling them to repentance. Deuteronomy 10, chapter, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's always been the language. God wants our hearts. Colossians 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Romans 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Romans 2, 25 through 29. For circumcision indeed is of a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Galatians 6 verse 15 for neither circumcision counts for anything, but nor circum- for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. See, so you see these things that as circumcision is not the thing that we're holding on to, and nor is ultimately baptism. It is the change of the heart. It is the new creation. It has always been pointing to that transformation. And it's always been hoping in that transformation. That's the thing that we need to realize, that the promise that was given to Abraham to circumcise was looking for a future hope to occur amongst his children. So as he circumcised the males, both his sons and those who were under his care, he was not hoping in that that was what saved them. He was hoping in the promises that God would circumcise their hearts. But now God has made a bigger household. He hasn't changed his grace. He's covering and fulfilling the promises of his grace. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, it says, Now Moses was faithful 
in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were being spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The reason why God's posture toward mankind has been through the households of people, the heads of households, is that he is showing forth the economy of how he works to bring about people into his household. That that covenant headship and that covenant hope is being displayed. The gospel hope of what is in Abraham is also a pointer to the gospel hope of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who brings all of his children into the household of God. When we discount this understanding of household, when we discount this understanding of the patriarchal headship of households, we discount the very means and the approach in which God has chosen to bring about people into his household. That's why it's such a big argument in our culture today. That's why when you go to the abortion mill, sometimes you'll hear people marching down with the patriarchy. That's why it's in our politics. They don't even know why they're saying that. It is Satan's very marching orders is to go against that teaching method that God has given us so that we may understand and see the display of the gospel in our homes. When children are baptized, it is hoping in the Holy Spirit to transform their lives. What's any different? If we had a missionary here today and we're going to send them off to a nation that doesn't have the word of God in their language yet and has had very little proclamation of Jesus there, we would all get behind him. We would pray that if he would go, what would we want him to do? What would we want him to do, Maurice, if he goes into that nation? What's one of the primary things he needs to do? Preach the word of God and make disciples. Right. So, if we have... A husband and wife who has a little baby here. And we bring him up. And we baptize the baby. What do we want the mother and father to do? Preach the word of God. Baptize them. Make them disciples. And train them up. Now, is one of these more powerful than the other? Is one of these any different? What's going to change the natives of this one place and change this child in the arms of their parents. The grace of God through the Holy Spirit. And so we see here, this, the, the debate here is uncircumcision versus cir- circumcision. And the argument is it's the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at the argument about baptism whether it's for the natives being baptized as they've been converted, who once did not know the Lord, but now knows the Lord like Billy Graham, it's the same Holy Spirit that transforms them just like the child who was like Ruth Graham 
who was raised up in her home by the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. The very first verse of my passage today, they received the word and they were drawn to the promises of repentance that leads to life. And then now in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 22, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh by the dividing wall the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to, do who, to those who were near. For through him we both have, have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you who are no longer, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple, the the holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The conflict that Peter had with the party of the uncircumcision is resolved by the blood of Jesus Christ, is resolved by the fulfillment of the promises of the Holy Spirit. He proclaims that gospel to them, and he shows them by a table. This argument that they had, you ate with these people, and he reminds them that God has made us clean to eat with us. See, the Jews knew that, that they are also those who are ultimately unclean. They are ultimately those who are aliens. They were just being used as a proclamation of how God's gospel was going to be done. They needed circumcised hearts just as much as the Gentiles did. And this reminder of the table that he had in his vision that was given to him three times, that is given to us each week, is that we are to no longer call what was considered unclean common any longer. Do you understand the great hope that is when we come to this table? When you are dealing with the two different things that Satan likes to get into our head with, on one hand, he'll say, you know, you're a sinner, so you might as well keep sinning. And then on the other side, he'll say, you're a sinner. You're hopeless. There's no hope for you. Think about your sins. Do you think God is going to actually do anything in your life? You keep sinning that sin. God has forgotten you. You're abandoned. There is no hope for you. You might as well give up. Have any of you all ever heard that message in your head? from Satan to either continue in sin or to continue in hopelessness by saying, you are unclean. You are common. And these words that were given to Peter, says, 
do not call what God has made clean common any longer. We hold on to our baptisms like they held on to their circumcisions because we are holding on to a hope. He is cleansing us. Is the the one who, if we did an altar call, the one who would come down, who was maybe committing adultery yesterday, coming down and repenting of their sin and saying, I want to follow the Lord. Does that make... Does that act make them any greater holiness than the child who grows up? Into adulthood, still struggling with sin and saying, Lord, I hold on to this promise. I've been baptized by you. I believe your word. Cut my heart. Transform me into your likeness and into your holiness. I'm not letting go of this promise that you have given in your word. That I can be a glory to your name. That I'll be washed and clean before you. This table is telling us that it is okay. If we are those who are lowly. Yes, he is high. He is holy. And this table should be treated as such. But those who are lowly, who are holding on to that hope of their baptism... They're called to come and to stop calling yourself unclean. He cannot have what is unclean. You may not see it clearly. You may not believe it, that it's possible that your sins can be washed. That's why it's a promise. That's why it's hope. That is why we come here every Sunday. And we take this table hoping that it's true. That it is really true that we are clean. And that we can eat with him forever. Let us pray.